Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayelet Bigger-Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. Welcome to Scam Rangers. Today's Scam Ranger is a veteran in the fraud fighting technology space. Yuri Rivner has been fighting financial crime for over 20 years, working closely with the world's largest banks on developing strategies against online fraud. Prior to founding Refine Intelligence, Yuri was co-founder at behavioral biometrics company Biocatch, and before that, head of new technologies at RSA. So hi, Yuri. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Ayelet. Uh, pleasure to be uh, in your podcast. You know, uh, I want to share with the audience that my first encounter with Yuri was actually my first encounter with the world of cybersecurity and fraud when I joined RSA in 2008 and Yuri was delivering the new employee training and teaching us all about how we collect information and, you know, device information, network information, other types of intelligence to be able to learn about patterns of good and bad behavior and how data sharing, which is now... Uh, you know, a trend that everyone's talking about, how important it is. And you, you know, back in 2008, you're a big advocate for data sharing and you created a tool for that and you preached for that. And I wanted to hear a little bit about your journey into the world of cybersecurity and fraud. And then we'll talk a little bit about RSA Conference as well. Awesome. So I started my uh, career in uh, fighting financial crime in a small startup, Israeli startup called Sayora. Today, many of you know what risk-based authentication is, but until Sayora, it did not exist. Sayora started uh, providing verified by Visa, MasterCard, secure codes, really secure, you know, these sort of services to credit cards. Uh, uh, but at some point, it was very clear that just the, the protocol itself was not really protecting uh, the customers or or the banks, and came up with uh, sort came up with the notion of analyzing transactions in real time and then assigning an elevated security if the risk was high, known as risk-based authentication. Started with uh, credit card transactions online, but then moved to uh, online banking. Um, and at that point, uh, the company was acquired by RSA. I became head of new technologies at RSA. And yeah, I remember fondly all of these um, employee training sessions. I, I, I basically tried to explain that uh, fraud is not like a lone person doing fraud. You don't have like a fraudster. You actually have a very big ecosystem where each of these components are basically providing a service or, you know, something that the industry, the fraud industry needs. And it's very, very competitive in nature, actually. That was the uh, first time that I met you. At RSA, we were um, fighting fraud across multiple, uh, you know, banks, financial institutions. And I think at that time, it was mostly around uh, Trojans, well after the, the, the fishing years. Scams, which we're going to probably talk about today, were a very minor issue these days. It wasn't like uh, the sort of uh, tsunami that we're currently witnessing. So account takeover fraud was essentially uh, almost all of it. 2011 was an interesting year because RSA uh, was actually uh, attacked by a foreign state. I wrote a blog called Anatomy of Attack that explained what happened. And over that year, um, I was 
basically looking for new technologies, things that are interesting, that can help the fight both in cyber and in cybercrime, and came across BioCatch. BioCatch, Behavioral Biometrics, a very uh, intriguing uh, new field of science. Back then, did not actually have any uh, you know, actual deployments uh, with financial institutions. And at some point, the founders of uh, BioCatch uh, asked me to join as a co-founder. That was in 2012. Today, BioCatch and Behavioral Biometrics is uh, used across the globe by many financial institutions, uh, mainly around account takeover fraud, but also account opening fraud, uh, anything to do with online account opening, uh, as well as scam detection, mule detection, and anything like that. And then a couple of years ago, I started to look at a, an adjacent field, a different field, uh, which is the uh, AML field, anti-money laundering. Um, it's quite interesting because for many years, it wasn't um, a field that was heavily focused on technology. It was heavily regulated, um, but technology came a little bit later when banks realized, look, we, we do need to invest here. Uh, create good detection models, use machine learning. The majority of the banks uh, started to uh, see that they really need to invest in uh, AML uh, and grow their uh, operation side. That's something that is an issue across the globe. The size of the operations team in an AML program, those are massive teams. And the other thing to, to remember is most of the uh, alerts that they go through on a daily basis they're essentially legit customer activities that are basically uh, uh, false positives. So it's a very interesting field to uh, look at in terms of, you know, what can be done? How can this be changed? Um, and I decided to uh, set up a new company called uh, Refine, Refine Intelligence. Great. So one of the characteristics you have besides being an expert in cybersecurity and cybercrime and everything fraud is your ability to tell stories. And you're one of the best storytellers I know, not only in our industry, but in general, which is why you get invited to speak at many venues, many conferences, many industry conferences, interviews with the media. And I think it's so important that you can communicate the challenges, you can communicate the threats, and you can communicate in a, the solutions in a way that really brings the concepts to everyone and makes it accessible to multiple stakeholders in the industry also fosters not not only better understanding of the problem the the solutions and the options but really fosters collaboration and one of my favorite activities that you do every year is uh, your presentations at rsa conference so what i wanted to do is shift a little bit to talk about RSA conference. I have serious FOMO because this is the first year since 2009 that I have not attended the conference. And here are some of your takeaways from RSA conference about scams. Um, so tell us a little bit, actually, let me start by sharing with our audience because not everyone is familiar with RSA conference. RSA conference is a very large cybersecurity conference. I'm going to say that at the peak, there were around 50,000 attendees the year before COVID. It's been picking up, and I think this year there were about 30,000 attendees officially. Um, there are probably a lot more people that attended the ancillary events and adjacent meetings, etc. And it's mostly focused on cybersecurity, um, threat awareness, and, and EDR, and, and all the, and identity, of course, and all the different types of cybersecurity enterprise cybersecurity solutions. But there is also a fraud track. And most importantly, there's an event called eFraud Global Forum, 
which is actually a, a pre-conference event that hosts the leading financial institutions globally. And it's a closed event, um, but you're, you always had access to it because you are a leader in the industry. And I would love for you to share kind of a little bit high level, what is the EFRD Global Forum? What happens there? So typically the EFRD Forum starts at the first day of uh, RSA conferences that are based in San Francisco. Around 100 to 150 leaders uh, across the globe, banks, credit issuers, financial institutions, e-commerce uh, organizations, marketplaces, and you know anything in between. The, the, the idea of this uh, forum is really collaboration and uh, exchanging ideas. Um, in any any time that I that I went to, uh, every time that I went to uh, Efraud, there were always new faces, but also like some of the folks that are uh, uh, there all the time. Um, so it's a very very good sort of uh, glue, right? If you think about it. Uh, in terms of the event itself. The topics are what is interesting for the, the, the fraud fighting community, mainly around banking fraud, I would say. That's like the, the, the focus as opposed to uh, e-commerce fraud. You have a lot of uh, other conferences focused on e-commerce. I think the most interesting thing about that event, a very, very good program committee where you have, you know, the fraud fighters, people from the banks um, that, you know, me to discuss the, the themes and the specific topics for each year. Uh, very good organization. And this year, scams were heavily discussed and, and it was a major uh, sort of concern and, and, and theme. Obviously, we can talk about scams and why they're so you know, dangerous and, and, and prevalent these days and, and, and how they evolve uh, over the years. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things that happened last year was really the liability uh, uh, shift around scams globally, uh, both in the UK, um, you know, the, P, the PSR um, legislation that is that is coming, uh, as well as similar things that are happening uh, in the in the US. The combination of scams, uh, instant payments, and the liability together basically spell disaster. So that was obviously very interesting for uh, for the audience. So EFRD was definitely one of the uh, highlights uh, for our uh, conference uh, on my end. You mentioned uh, a talk that we uh, gave Erin uh, from uh, BioCatch and myself on, uh, uh, at our conference, and that was a learning lab, which is almost like a workshop, a two-hour workshop focused on uh, mules. Mules are the oxygen of, uh, of uh, financial crime. You, you cannot really uh, uh, operate without mules. And mules have developed over the years. It used to be uh, people that have been recruited, uh, some of them knowingly, some of them unknowingly, uh, to participate in uh, fraud operations. But uh, today it's also possible to be your own mule by just setting up a new account. Um, so account opening fraud is heavily uh, tied to uh, the problem of mules. Some of these you know, accounts that are being opened uh, can serve as mules for things that are not banking fraud. For example, a couple of years ago, the biggest problem was actually stimulus fraud. And billions of dollars in the stimulus pack fraud had to flow somewhere. And they flowed into freshly opened accounts using either identity theft or synthetic identities. And definitely uh, mules are, are not just a you know, recruiting an existing person, but also creating a new uh, account. What we did in the uh, in the workshop, uh, we call it uh, war games, and we split the audience into groups. Each group sitting across the table, 
and we presented uh, real-world scenarios. We gave some facts, and then we uh, uh, offered additional data. Every team had to decide whether they want additional data or they want to make a call, like saying, hey, this is definitely a mule situation, or no, it's actually a legitimate, genuine sort of activity. And it was a very interesting contest between the teams. So, for example, what, what kind of data would you give them? So I'll give you an example. Someone in the US, uh, it happened in September uh, last year, um, deposited exactly $10,000 in cash. Now, in the US, if you deposit cash over $10,000, there's actually a, an official report going to the government, um, a cash transaction report. Um, some people want to fly a little bit below that radar. Um an exact $10,000 cash deposit. Certainly, if a person never had you know, that amount of cash uh, being deposited in their account before, is highly suspicious. And in that specific case, the AML team actually picked it up you know, using transaction monitoring as a suspicious activity that they wanted to investigate. So this, that's like the scenario. Now, let's talk about the additional data, right? So what sort of additional data is available? In that specific uh, case, it was a digital outreach that collected uh, the following. Uh, it was a gift uh, from my parents. And the reason is I'm getting married. Okay? Like that's a, a data point uh, to that investigation. And let's say that at that, at that point, the team needs to make a, a, a decision. Do we need more information or we're ready to make, make a call? Which could be, hey, that's a mule uh, or some sort of uh, money laundering here or it could be a legitimate person. The next uh, uh, set of uh, data was around the person. They're 28 years old. Um, the family lives in a high-income sort of neighborhood, you know, these, these sort of uh, things. So most people by, by that point say, well, maybe it actually looks more like a legitimate uh, uh, sort of activity. You had to decide whether it's a mule activity or not. In any case, it was, it was educational, fun. People really liked it. You're not helping me with my FOMO, but fine. <laughs> so let's uncover some of the conversations around scams. Now we'll kind of double click into that. I'm just going back to the beginning of our conversation today. You talked about account takeover fraud, new account fraud, um, mules, and all the methodologies that we used to use about and, and in order to be able to detect those types of behaviors. And I think the fundamental question that we asked ourselves through the technology is basically, are you who you claim to be? So for account takeover fraud, are you the true, are you digitally representing the true human that owns this account, the account holder uh, or acting on their behalf? And we were able to detect that through device intelligence, network intelligence, behavior, and other characteristics. And same for account opening, are you who you claim to be with you know, KYC, know, know your customer, and other controls like location and, and do they match your personal information and do you behave like a new user? You mentioned behavioral biometrics who doesn't know the form and doesn't know the process. And we talked a lot about this a little bit in previous episodes as well. When it comes to scams, the question is fundamentally different. It's not, are you who you claim to be, but really we know that you are who you claim to be. We probably verified that with our account takeover tools. But the question is, are you acting under the right intent? Are you being coerced by someone? What I wanted to ask you is, what were conversations at the conference about that challenge, about an approach we need to take 
was there, I know that there are a lot of conversations, you know, and, and there is a sense of urgency because everything you mentioned, the liability, the faster payments, the liability in, in, in many countries, the conversations and happening in Australia and, and in Singapore and in the UK and the US, of course, what are some of the observations that were raised in terms of the approach that we need to take into combating this problem of online scams that, as you mentioned earlier, a few years ago, it was a small problem. Now we know it's growing because the account takeover controls became so good. Yeah, so I, let me think about um, several angles in terms of solutions uh, you know, around the problem. When we think about scams, you're right, it's the most devious and difficult thing to detect because it's the genuine person doing this. They're gonna pass any kind of authentication. Um, it's not a criminal, there's no remote access, there's no bot activity. It's the real person doing this. The first types of scams that actually hit the UK uh, 2016 or so were impersonation scams, known as authorized push payment impersonation scams. Let's just give an example. Someone got a phone call from her mobile carrier in the UK. I remember it, uh, this specific case because it was the first time I actually came across uh, a scam uh, like this. And um, she was told, hey, you're late on your fees. Can you please pay? She paid you know, 60 pounds with her debit card. Five minutes later, she gets a call from the bank. Um, you know, we, we see some strange activity. Can you explain? She says, yeah, that's my mobile carrier. No, it's not. We can see it's, you actually paid someone, but it wasn't your mobile provider. It was someone else entirely. Did you give your debit card? Oh, so that's like, uh, that's bad because it's tied to your bank account. Unfortunately, we'll have to give you a new bank account number. And can you please move all of your money to this new bank account number? Now, remember that in that specific case, uh, she was told, hey, you have too much money in your current account. You have like 26,000 pounds. So that's too much. How about you move 9,000 pounds? And then we'll wait, you know, we'll see that it's in, in your safe new bank account. And then we'll tell you to move the rest. She actually did four payments. Uh, I was at Biocatch, and from you, you're right, from an account takeover perspective, the, the, the score was, was perfect, everything was fine. It's almost like the AI looked at it and fainted dead away, you know, something like that. It's like, no, it's, 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 everything is fine here. Um, it's not fraud. Um, initially, I actually thought that it's like, how would you detect something like this? It is the real person doing it. Just to explain to the audience, of course, the second call was part of the same scheme of the first call that was a bank impersonation scam. And they created credibility by knowing about the first call from the fake mobile carrier. And basically, she lost all of her money, not just the 60 pounds. Exactly. So um, how do you detect something like this, right? But then... Uh, uh, the data science team that looked at that specific uh, case found something interesting. What they found is that she was waiting for uh, something to happen. Like she moved 9,000 pounds. She was told to wait for several minutes. Something was strange, something that never happened before. She was randomly moving the mouse on the screen for like five minutes. That was a very odd behavior. Because if you think about it, people normally interact with mobile banking, with online banking. They don't entertain themselves. It's not an entertainment system. It's, a, it's an online banking system. You're supposed to do something. She was not very focused on the actual session. 
Maybe she was bored. Maybe she was told to wait until, you know, she gets, uh, uh, you know, confirmation. So she said, okay, I, I want to go away. Maybe the session will close or something. I'm going to keep it live. But regardless of the specific reason, that was a weird behavior. And interestingly enough, it wasn't the only case where this was observed. There were many other scams with a similar behavior, either this or someone just moving the, the mouse wheel up and down, like for, for several minutes. You know, these sort of behaviors were strange, which triggered an idea. Maybe there are some micro behaviors. So it's not something that says, oh, it's not Ayelet. It's, it's like a different person. But something about the way Ayelet is doing this session is weird, right? And then once you started looking at the data, uh, it was clear uh, that there are some micro behaviors that could be observed. Uh, people are more hesitant. People are under duress. People um, are being guided. So there are some signs for being guided as well. It's almost like you're, you're being di dictated to. So the idea was to collect all of that through machine learning and create a new AI that was looking specifically at scams. And indeed, today, a lot of banks are using such models using a combination of behavioral biometrics, which is pretty effective for impersonation scams, where you're being pressed to do something right now and it affects your behavior, in addition to other signals. Um, those other signals mainly are related to data sharing. So what do we know about the beneficiary account? Is it a new account? You know, when was it open? Who owns that account? Is it a business? Is it... So these sort of uh, things as well as well as transaction monitoring. What's the size of the, you know, how, how much money are you moving? Is it an international money transfer, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that um, for that specific type of scam, there are good solutions, right? Uh, so banks, even if they're now going to be liable for that, they're not that concerned. But over the years, the expectation from banks was to start being responsible, not just for impersonation, like, hey, you're the bank, you're supposed to know the customers. So if someone impersonates the bank and kind of hits your customers, please protect them. The expectation, both from consumer rights uh, groups as well as uh, the regulators, was um, protect the customer against any type of scam. You know, investment scams, romance scams, crypto scams, buying puppies online scams, etc., etc., uh, to a point where now banks in the UK, for example, are expected to uh, reimburse customers. And a new legislation is basically saying you're going to be liable for all of it. And half of the uh, fraud loss will be the receiving end, not just the, the, the bank that is originating that. Right. And in the US, by the way, starting June 30, Zelle is going to also enforce liability for the receiving bank, 100% for the receiving bank. Which, which is going to be interesting. Uh, let's actually understand what's going on here, right? So you're a bank. You, you could be a, a large bank. You could be a small bank. And there's a customer called Yuri uh, who opened an account, I don't know, a year ago and uh, now starts to receive Zelle transactions. Ayelet is now sending uh, $2,000 to Yuri, right? Why? There could be any number of reasons. Maybe it's rent money. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe I'm doing a fundraiser. There are so many possibilities, right? If I'm the receiving bank, and this is instant payment, this happens instantly, right? If I'm the receiving bank, I have a very narrow window of opportunity 
to basically make a decision here. And it doesn't have too many signals, right? Because it's not related to online banking. It's not related to, you know, these sort of things. I just received something to my bank account. I didn't have to be online to receive it, right? So how would the bank at this point make an intelligent decision? Let's say that they have transaction monitoring and they have, um, uh, you know, data sharing. Zelle is, is an amazing network. It's operated by early warning systems. There are all sorts of things that can be done here, right? But any kind of detection model here will have a lot of false positives, you know, 99% perhaps. Right, but you could you could definitely, and this is, again, something we tried to do at RSA many years ago, uh, enforce data sharing for bad accounts. So if there are multiple complaints for an account that, you know, it has, it's associated with scams, then you can shut down that account. The problem is by the time they realize and collect all that data, they've already lost a lot of money in their liability situation. That's that's the point, yeah. And 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 you you get to a point where you have one mule per uh, uh, fraud, and and then you cannot really do anything there, right? Um, it is going to be very difficult for the receiving end uh, to defend themselves at this point. And I think beyond that, so if you think about it again, you have the originating bank where at least you can see something going online, right? So there might be some signals, especially if this is impersonation. Less so if it's something like a Roman scam or investment scam or these sort of things. It's going to be less obvious, right? But certainly when you receive money and you're supposed to be liable for a fraud, if if this was fraud, that's going to be very tricky. Um, At eFraud Forum, one of the suggestions was, okay, limiting things. So, for example, let's say that you're the originating bank. You can limit uh, new transfers to a new destination, if you are the receiving bank, you can say, okay, I'm limiting uh, the person the uh, first time that they receive money, like $75, et cetera, or you know, put some sort of limitation. But this has far-reaching implications. If I'm actually uh, telling my, uh, uh, you know, telling people that are, are uh, using my apartment, okay, to start sending me uh, their rent money using Zelle. They used to use checks or, I don't know, cash. And now I'm telling them, no, 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 there's something new called Zelle. I'm, I'm accepting Zelle. If you're now limiting this, they will not be able to move the rent money. So that that's going to be a problem, right, for both ends. It becomes a usability issue. It becomes also an expectation issue. Putting controls is possible, but I'm just saying that limit, limiting customers uh, has some consequences that we have to think about. One of the things that was suggested or one of the things that the UK now has a new initiative to fight scams with multiple, you know, scam hunters or or criminal hunters and and other elements of that proposal. And one of them is the ability for a financial institution to at times slow down faster payments. In other words, if they do suspect something, not necessarily block it, but have enough time for themselves to investigate it and, and slow down. Is that something that came up at all? Uh, it did came up, and, and it's an issue. I'll, I'll explain. The, I think the main difference between fraud and scam is actually not the fact that in fraud, it's a criminal inside your account, and in a scam, it's you doing it. It's not about the detection. It's Yes, detection is going to be more, more difficult, but actually, there's something that is even, even more uh, interesting. Uh, 
Account tech over fraud is the only type of fraud where you can ask the customer to resolve the investigation for you. So that's essentially meaning that if you have an account, right, and there is something suspicious in the account, I can ask you, hey, Ayelet, are you now moving $5,000? Or are you using your credit card right now, you know, somewhere and, and, and paying with, with your credit card, uh, uh, you know, $5,000 transaction? And then you can say yes or no. So you basically resolve the alert for me. I don't have to hire people to do an, any investigation, right? Right. Now, and banks told us that accounting over fraud resolution takes about half an hour to two, whereas scams is much lengthier process. So maybe you can get into that a little bit. So, so, so that's the point. The point is that um, if the customer is resolving the, 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 the case for you, right, you don't need a big operations team. But the point is that the, the, the other sides of financial crime don't behave like that. Let's take AML. Uh, first time that I started to look at uh, AML, I found it very interesting to see how many people are in the analytics team versus how many people are in the operations team. One of the top 10 banks that we started working with, they have five people in the analytics team and 700 people in the operations team. Wow. That's the ratio. Some of the biggest banks have 10,000 people in their operations. Why? It's because you have a model and you cannot ask the customer to resolve alerts for you. So I'm not going to send you a text message saying, hey, Ayelet, are you doing terror financing? Reply one, right? Same with... Uh, same with e-commerce fraud. If you're on the e-commerce side, I'm not going to send you a text message saying... Is it okay? Like, are we going to get the chargeback here? You know, reply one if there's going to be like a risk of chargeback. No, you cannot do that, right? You can only do it in account takeover. In scams, it's the same. You cannot ask the person. Why can't you ask the person? Because they're always going to say yes, as well as the the, the like the victims and the non-victims will behave in the same way. They will always say, yeah, I'm doing this, right? And just, and just to add here, the victims are also told the story. They're manipulated by the cyber criminal. So even if the bank asks them very targeted questions and, and even says, I suspect you're being scammed, they already got the information from the, right. the criminal to persuade them. Right. Otherwise. So, uh, so let's actually summarize, right? High, high amount of false positives because it is more difficult than fraud. That's one. Second, you have to investigate anything that is an alert because you cannot ask the customer to resolve it for you, okay? So let's say that you slowed it down and now you move it to someone to investigate. So now there's an investigation, but you have to do it across all of your alerts, right? The next thing is, let's talk about that investigation. An AML investigation, some people don't actually know that, can take three months because the idea is not to stop the transaction. The idea is to report suspicious activity in the account. Maybe it's money laundering, maybe it's terror financing, human trafficking, whatever. You look at the account, you start looking at some shorty things, you report it to the government. That's money laundering. Let's say that you slowed it down. How slow did you slow it? You know, like a day maybe, an hour? It's not going to be three months, right? Someone uh, wants to send me the rent money, right? I, you need to make a decision. Let's say that you slowed it down. Someone is looking at this. They will have a few hours to resolve it. So you will have to investigate everything, meaning that you need to increase your operations capacity as a fraud team, not an AML team, as a fraud team, I don't know, 20 times. But you have to do it 
100 times faster than your colleagues in your in the same like department of of the bank, which is the AML, uh, uh, you, you know, your colleagues, your peers in AML. So you have to do it very fast and you have to investigate everything. That's going to be a problem, right? So I think the point is the conversation at uh, eFraud was interesting because people are still considering what they will do once they switch on the, the, the scam detection model. It's not that obvious, right? You can put controls, you can try to investigate, but then you have to do it very fast. Fraud teams are not built in, in, in a bank, right? In a, in a bank that is typically fighting account tech over fraud and is not liable today to cover scams. There's no liability right now today in the US for, for covering scams. They're not equipped to do these investigations. So that's a sort of uh, interesting conversation because they know it's coming, but uh, uh, it's going to be difficult to actually uh, accomplish. So that was, the, I think, one of the keys uh, you know, key, key uh, takeaways from that uh, from that event. Wow, that's a lot of work and a lot of thought. And the more we talk, the more I'm thinking we we need to be able to stop scams way earlier in what I call a scam life cycle, or some other colleagues suggested the scam kill chain. Um, but we need to start earlier because when the payment is already processed or or going through or in the process, that's really hard, and the amount of work that has to go into that is going to be significant. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to ask you, I always ask my guests what they're hopeful about. And you write a lot of big challenges in this ecosystem. I wanted to ask you, what are you hopeful about? What, you, what do you see happening that's going to be positive? What I'm hopeful about is that we've been there before, right? When there was like the, the huge wave of phishing attacks, banks looked at you know, they looked at the IT department and said, hey, IT folks, what do we do, right? Like, you guys are supposed to be very secure. The customers just give away their passwords. It seemed to be mission impossible. But then the industry coped with that. Same with the wave of Trojan attacks. Same with the initial wave of impersonation attacks and scams. The point is that at some point, the industry does come up with solutions. And it's a matter of, you know, thinking outside of the box, uh, getting some clever people to kind of think about solutions and uh, adopting those solutions pretty fast. And so the industry is able to, um, you know, to adapt to the new uh, situation. By the way, we haven't touched upon one thing, which is obviously generative AI uh, and the combination of that with deepfake. Because look, whatever scams we're seeing today, whatever level of social engineering is available uh, at the moment, that's going to be multiplied over the next few years. So it's going to be very difficult to, um, you know, to defend against something that grows so, you know, exponentially as social engineering in the coming years. Um, I think the, the, the bottom line, it's going to be interesting, but I'm hopeful because, you know, we're, we're, we're a clever industry. You know, not just the bad guys are clever. Also, the, the fraud fighting industries uh, consisted of, of, you know, people that can, uh, that, that can help. Amen. I really hope uh, we'll, we'll do it sooner rather than later, but I absolutely agree. And uh, our industry has seen a lot of things in the past and we're on it. Thank you so much, Yuri. And uh, maybe in the future we can meet again and chat about what you just mentioned, deep fakes and chat GPT and generative AI and how cyber criminals will use that and drive some hope into there as well. Thank you. 
Thanks, Ada. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Yuri. If you want to keep up with trends in online scams, regulatory developments, and everything news regarding this topic, follow me on LinkedIn, Ayelet Bigger Living. In addition, if you encounter a message that looks like it's suspicious, you can now validate it through a new website called scamranger.ai. Click on validate a message and you'll get both an evaluation of the level of risk of that scam and guidance on what you should consider to verify this message. Let me know what you think. Thank you.